Well, before we dive in, I just want to say it's very good to be back, and thank you for to everyone who lifted us up in prayer and gave us meals. Uh, as most everybody knows, we've had COVID, and we are safe again. We're probably some of the safest people you know right now, um, but we are still dealing with some of the after effects of COVID, Angela's pneumonia, and my just fatigue. And one of the things I've been experiencing is if I talk for more than 10 minutes at a time, I get dizzy, which is particularly problematic for... <laughs> what I do, but I made it through the first service, so I feel like we're fine here. Um, I, did, I did threaten to go really modern and get a chair if I have to, but we'll see. Um, so thank you. I also just want to say it's every pastor's dream to be a part of a church where you can get sick for three weeks and the church doesn't skip a beat, so just thank you to everyone who filled in in my absence. I really appreciate it. It made me very, very thankful to be a part of this church. Secondly, uh, we have Advent looming and if there is ever a year that we, we want to celebrate the, the birth of our Savior and be excited and joyful, it is Christmas. And so we are looking to build upon all the, the great work that people like Kathy Hudson and Joyce Hunt have done uh, with Christmas. So we've got all our Christmas stuff back there. And we've come up with kind of a three-year plan of something to build to. And uh, here's my specific request. All of you will get an email to this end this week. But first request, if you have an artificial tree of any size, would you consider donating it to us? You can just, you can just put it at the, bring it to the church during business hours. Second, would you please bring a framed picture of your family? We want to do something special with it. And if you're single, it can just be you. It doesn't matter. It can be a Christmas card. It, you can give multiples. It doesn't matter to us. The, the, we wouldn't want you to go any bigger than eight by 10. We don't need a massive picture of the Jackson family or something. Um, so we, yeah, but framed and delivered to the church, it would be, um, we would really appreciate that. And then thirdly, we, we've kind of mapped out where we would like to go, again, in three years because of our unique budgetary constraints in 2020. We're going to send you an Amazon store uh, that can utilize our uh, tax ID, and if you are so motivated, you can, you can purchase different things for, uh, for our Christmas um, season, things that we'll continue to use for years to come. So those are the three requests. We, we want um, Christmas to be joyful, especially this year. All right, Acts chapter 5. We, uh, we left off in chapter 4 about a month ago. <laughs> so you may remember in chapter 4, up until chapter 4, Luke has, um, he has presented this almost idyllic uh, portrayal of the church. And I think he's done this on purpose because he knows the bomb that he's about to drop in Acts chapter 5 where we see deceit, we see lying, and we actually see God striking people dead. So I think there, Luke intends this real juxtaposition of idyllic to dead. And he wants us to feel it. And I, I want to mention it because we haven't been in Acts in almost a month. And I was thinking about what, what really is the main point of Ananias and Sapphira. We, we practice what we call expository preaching, which means that the main point of the text is the main point of the sermon. And so what is the main point of the text? Is it lying? Is it how to not get struck dead by God? Is it uh, some sort of financial stewardship? Is it communism? I mean, you know, what's, what, is, what is this text teaching? And so I, I, I was looking around, I actually read a, a John Piper sermon on this text, and he titled it, Be Like Barnabas, Not Ananias and Sapphira. So I feel like that was a really safe path there to, to navigate this passage. But 
After thinking and praying, I really think the main point of this passage is a warning to our hearts about uh, what is it that we're really worshiping. I think, I think that's at the heart of this passage. And I think about my kids and I'm, uh, Angela and I are sinners and we have birthed four sinners. So they're, gonna, they're going to uh, make mistakes. And, and when, when, they, when they make bad decisions, yes, there are actions to be addressed. But the hard part that, that we're really trying to do is understand why they made those actions. What is it that they were ultimately desiring, ultimately worshiping that caused them to make the decisions that they've made. And so that's, that's the way I want to wade into Ananias and Sapphira. What is it that was going on in their heart truly? And then we get to see Peter's response and then we get to see God's response. So that's just how we're going to walk through this passage. So first, what is it that was going on in Ananias and Sapphira's hearts? To see it, I think we need to go back to Barnabas at the end of chapter 4. And and it kind of sets the stage because remember in chapter 4, everything's idyllic. Everything looks perfect. Barnabas sells this field that he owns and he sets all the proceeds at the feet of the apostles. And Barnabas, who we know is the son of encouragement, he receives a lot of praise and attention for doing that. And what we see in Barnabas is worship, true worship, because what you worship really is what you love, and what you love is going to be the thing that you sacrifice for, and Barnabas is sacrificing for his, his love of God and his worship of God. And I think it's easily missed here, but all, all the commentaries point out that likely Barnabas' field was not uh, in Jerusalem that he sold. And that's important because likely these disciples have Jesus's warnings about the fall of the temple in mind. And they might've thought, well, Jerusalem's gonna fall and you know, land in Jerusalem isn't gonna be worth anything. So maybe Ananias and Sapphira were thinking, listen, we're gonna lose this money anyway. Let's just go ahead and sell it. And, but that wasn't what's going on with Barnabas. Barnabas, in all likelihood, his field was far away and he, he probably didn't have any fear of that field devaluating um, in its worth. And so Ananias and Sapphira, they see all the attention and the praise that Barnabas is getting and they think, I want that. I want that praise. I want that attention. And they, they craft a plan to be able to get it. So their plan is to sell this field, again, that probably they thought they were going to lose the money anyway if they didn't sell it. And they, with, they get the proceeds, and then they go to the church publicly and lay a portion of what they made at the feet of the apostles, and they tell everybody that's all of it. They, te- they lie and tell everybody, this is, this is everything we got. And I, I was just mulling over the story, and they're lying to be seen as, as something that they weren't. And it conjures up an old memory of there was a, a guy at FSU and he was in the, the Greek system was not a very Christian place at the time. Maybe it is now. I don't know. But uh, there was one guy who seemed to me like he was single handedly carrying the banner of the gospel. You know, he was the Christian guy. Like it's pretty the Christian guy. And he was a vocal guy and he would make his stance on things known and he would criticize the things that we were doing and make it known that it was unchristian well then fast forward a few years we all come to find out everything he's speaking against he's really doing in private and so what what I began to see is that this guy, he, he craved this kind of attention and praise. He wanted to be seen as somebody he really wasn't. And for me, that's exactly what's going on in Ananias and Sapphira. They want the worship of these people. They want to be seen as super spiritual. They want to be seen the same way that Barnabas was seen. And so many people at this point have asked, well, were Ananias and Sapphira true believers? I don't know. 
I mean, I could, I could make a case that they were total hypocrites and God was showing that. I also have a category for uh, true believers that have competing worship in their hearts. I don't know if they were true believers, but what I really want us to see is how right worship of God, it gives us the freedom to not be controlled by the things that we're tempted to worship other than God. John Piper, about this passage, he said that when we worship God with our whole hearts, first, the heart is tightened in its relationship to people, and second, the heart is loosened in its relationship to things. Faith in Christ creates a bond of love to people and cuts the bond of love to things. I read that and I was just thinking how attractive that is to feel bonded to the people and to feel loosened to all the things that I'm tempted to, to run to and, and worship. And this, in this we see that God has designed for human flourishing to start at what we worship. Human flourishing starts with what we worship. And so his goal is to align our hearts uh, and to what it is that we truly long for, to what it is that will truly satisfy us, and, and really then to put all the competing values in our heart in their proper place. And so this could be, this could be attention and praise, like Ananias and Sapphira. It could be money, it could be power, it could be a lot of different things. But Barnabas here is a great example of what it looks like, how things should work when our, when our praise is first centered on God. And Ananias and Sapphira, as Piper <laughs> titled his sermon, they're a great example of how flawed we are and how tempted we are to worship things that ultimately will not just, not just sa- not satisfy us, but ultimately lead to our own destruction. So we want the things that will destroy us and we naturally neglect the one who has come to save us. Angela and I are, we've been reading this kind of fascinating book. It's called Strange Rites. It's a newer, R-I-T-E-S. It's a newer book by a woman named Tara Burton. And I don't know if she, I think she's a Christian, I'm not sure, but she's, a, she's an incredible student of culture. And in this book, she is talking about the secularization of our society. And what she does that I think is really interesting, she says it's not the kind of secularization that most of us think is going on. It's not the kind of secularization that, say, Christopher Hitchens or Richard Dawkins would want. Our increased secularization is not a move towards atheism or even agnosticism. Uh, It's a move to something else. And the the word nuns is something that's probably not like Catholic nuns. Somebody had had to clarify after first service. N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S. N-O-N-E-S, the group that we call the nuns that has no formal affiliation with a religious group, that is the fastest growing and uh, and, uh, strongest political group in, in our country at this point, or at least the most politically influential. And so... This group of people, this is Tara Burton's line of argument, they're not godless people. You know, all these nuns, they're not godless people. And in fact, the vast majority of the nuns in our culture, they believe in God. They even say they talk to God. An overwhelming number would even articulate a Christian, pretty Christian idea about God. But they distrust the institution of the church and they've decided what they want is they want to pick and choose what their spirituality looks like and they really want to they want to curate their spirituality their religion kind of the way they curate their own Facebook group and so what does this have to do with Ananias and Sapphira I think everything because Ananias and Sapphira are 
two of the first examples in the New Testament of people choosing to worship something lesser than God, which causes them to devalue the people of God, which is an institution, and they begin to curate a religious system of their own, not realizing that what they're letting go of is the thing that can save them, and what they're grabbing hold of is the thing that's going to kill them. I mean, I think Ananias and Sapphira are a perfect picture of the religious nuns in our culture today. So, are they guilty of lying? Yes, obviously. But there's so much dysfunction that's happening under the surface that we have to be able to see. And then we're able to ask ourselves, how is it that we do this same thing today? What are ways that we allow our misplaced worship to tear us apart as believers in in the same local church? And it's election week. So you know where I'm going. I I have to do this in election week. Politics is a way that we allow misplaced worship to tear us apart. Now, I'm not saying politics are inherently bad. Uh, I'm very thankful to be in a country where I can vote. Angela and I waited in line for an hour and 20 minutes yesterday to be able to vote. I'm proud of it. I wore my sticker all day yesterday. But there is a point where in certain people, it isn't about your country anymore. Because your value as a person, your identity is directly connected to the success of one political party. And when we start talking about value and identity, now we're talking about worship. And at that point is when we will begin to see division between brothers and sisters who don't agree on how to vote, who don't hold the same political positions. It will cause you to believe the worst And other people in this church, you will gossip about them, you will slander them, and at this point, you are no different than Ananias and Sapphira. So that's what's going on in Ananias and Sapphira's hearts. Now we get to see Peter's bold response. I'm going to read chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie, to lie to the Holy Spirit, and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. So in that response, we see three things in Peter's response that I think help us to understand what's going on with Ananias and Sapphira. And the first thing that Peter makes clear is they were not under any mandate to sell the land. And once they sold the land, they weren't under any mandate to give the proceeds to the church. This is not some cult that they're a part of. This is not some early form of communism that they're a part of. So when Peter says, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? He's saying it's okay to own land. You can own land. That Nobody told you you couldn't own land. Then he said, after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? So when you got the money, you could have done whatever you wanted with it. You were under no obligation to give the money to us. You could have given 2%, 10%, all of it, but you didn't have to give any of it. This was your money to do what you wanted, but instead you decide to try to deceive all of us, to make us think you're doing something that, that you really are not doing. Second, Peter says that Satan had a real contribution to this mess. Peter says that Satan has filled Ananias' heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. I think one of the most dangerous things that we can do as Christians is to live either knowingly or unknowingly 
ignorant of the invisible war that's transpiring around us all the time. So Satan is a real being. He was the most beautiful of angels. He wanted the power that God had. He went against God along with one-third of the angelic host. They were defeated, cast down to this earth, and now they know they can't, go, they can't beat God. So they're going after the next best thing, God's image bearers. That's what's going on around us in an invisible way all the time. And I think it's incredibly likely that Satan himself was there influencing Ananias. And I don't think it would be crazy to think that the conversation was much like that that Satan had with, with Eve. Saying, did, did God really tell you to do this? Did, shouldn't you maybe be getting this praise? Is God withholding something from you? You do what you want to do. I mean, it's not like you're going to die. But Satan isn't omnipresent the way that God is. That means he can't be everywhere the way that that God is. So he has an entire organized army to help carry out his plans. And I think probably none of us are ever going to be strategic enough to merit Satan's personal attention. But by virtue of all of our faith in Jesus Christ, all of us are important enough to merit the attention of his army. And we have to live knowing that that's transpiring around us all the time, especially in the tension and the chaos of this year. A pastor who I, I hold in high regard, his name's Crawford Loritz, he once said to me, brother, if your plane's getting shot at, it might just mean you're flying the right direction. <laughs> and I have to think that Peter might have had this specific situation in his mind when he wrote 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So this isn't just limited to Ananias and Sapphira. This is, this is true of all of the brotherhood and sisterhood around the entire world. There is an invisible war led by a real being named Satan. And the, the way he might go after us, it's often not this massive obvious spiritual attack the way that you I will say you do see in some other parts of the world in the United States of America I think if he did something blatant and obvious it would drive all of us and a lot of the nuns back to Jesus Christ himself so what Satan is doing in our midst I believe is something much more subtle it made me think of a book that C.S. Lewis wrote called The Screwtape Letters, where it's a fictional book where uh, you, we have the letters between a superior demon named Screwtape and an inferior demon named Wormwood. And in one part, Screwtape tells Wormwood, Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. So what... I I think this is the kind of gradual uh, path that Satan had for Ananias and Sapphira. And I think it's exactly what we're witnessing all around our culture at this moment. Because Satan isn't trying to turn our culture immediately into some atheistic kind of, again, Richard Dawkins type, uh, type society. There are 81 million nuns in our country, 81 million, and only 7% of our country would actually claim atheism or agnosticism. So we have this hybrid of views that gives the perception of spirituality while successfully keeping everyone away from the thing that they 
long for the most, the person they long for the most, the person that they need to worship the most. They have the semblance of spirituality without true worship. And again, uh, C.S. Lewis addresses this when Screwtape says to Wormwood, a moderated religion is as good as no religion at all. And honestly, a little bit more amusing. So Satan is a part of this. But then thirdly, Peter allows us to see that Satan isn't the only one to blame. Ananias' sin is just as culpable. And that's why Peter says to him that he has contrived this deed in his heart. He can't hide the sin. He can't justify the sin. He can't blame shift. You know, going back to Adam and Eve, when, when God confronted Adam on his sin, what's the first thing he did? The woman did it and you gave her to me. I don't see how I'm at fault here. And so Peter, in the way that he's addressing him, is making sure he can't hide, he can't justify, he can't blame shift. Peter is being clear, you contrived this in your heart. And in our society, we continue, we can easily see the way that we do this with our sin, the way that the culture increasingly justifies it, hides it, blame shifts it. And we do this because we don't fundamentally realize who it is that we're sinning against. Because it's easy to justify if we think we're just sinning against each other. But Peter makes it clear, you're sinning against God here. It's not just the church, it's against God. And I've used this illustration before, but it, 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 it's, it's the best one I can think of. If you think of a better one, let me know. But if, I, if one of you were to punch me in the face, I may call the police, but you're going to be in bed by night. <laughs> if you punch the governor, you're going to go to jail. You're going to do real time. If you can manage to punch the president of the United States in the face, you may never see the light of day again. It was the same offense, but it was committed against a more important person. And as that person becomes more important, so does the punishment. So what should we expect when we sin against the most important being that has ever or will ever live? eternal punishment and this is what peter makes clear to ananias you have lied to man you have not lied to man but to god you have lied to the holy spirit they worshiped how people saw them they wanted that worship maybe a little bit more money too and it caused them to lie to their creator not just to the church but to their creator that's peter's response and then lastly we see god's response god kills them and I, I can, so first Ananias drops dead. And then about three hours later, uh, Sapphira, she, she's challenged and you're confronted and she doubles down on the lie and she too drops dead. And I can remember as a new believer in my early 20s reading this and, and just feeling like this really escalated quickly. <laughs> I feel like God's made, God feels like he's overreacting a bit <laughs> because these are all things that I think I've been a part of at a heart level. God's never struck me dead. You know, did they just catch God on a bad day? Like, what, what is it that causes them, uh, God is, God, what is it that caused God to kill these two people for lying? Well, of course, first we remember it's not just lying. We have to remember the heart of the issue here is that Ananias and Sapphira, they wanted to rob God of the worship due him. And they wanted to, the worship that would have gone him, they wanted it redirected to themselves and they were doing it where God should be getting most worship in the, uh, in the gathering of God's people. So that part needs to be clear. But again, this seems to be the exception, not the rule because Gosh, there are lots of 
pastors and preachers who stand up and at, at, at the core of who they are, they're wanting to rob the praise of God. They're wanting to be praised. I've prayed against that. I prayed today, <laughs> especially that would not be true of me. But why, so why is it, if all these people get through, why does God kill these two people? And the honest answer is, I don't know. We can venture some guesses. Um, one guess is that this was just such an important time in the history of the development of the church that God had to make it clear about how his sovereignty and, and the priority of his worship over, over other things. Um, many people have noted that most times in the Bible when God strikes someone dead, it tends to be seasons of new beginnings for the people of God. Certainly this is a season of a type of new beginning. This, is the, the fir- this passage is the first time that the word church is used in the New Testament. Another theory is that uh, the intensity of the purity of God's people in this moment made it an extra hostile environment for sin. And so the argument would go, if you, if you look at the temple or the tabernacle before that, uh, it, it, the, the temp, temple basically means meeting place between God and man. It's not like God has a home and that's where he's limited to and he lives there. This is just the, the place that he's chosen to meet with us. So the, the burning bush could be a type of temple, the tabernacle, the temple. And you see that sin, can't, the closer sin gets to the holiest of holies, that meeting place in the temple, the, the more cataclysmic the effect. This is why unholy things and unclean things had to be far away from the center of the camp. There's this idea out there that sin is to God what water is to the wicked witch of the West. And he just needs sin far away. That's not at all what's going on. God does this to protect us because when sin and God interact, God's just fine. God's just fine. He's doing this to protect us. And now we are the temple. We're the temple. N.T. Wright says to name the name of Jesus and to invoke the Holy Spirit is to claim to be the temple of the living God and that is bound to have consequences. So maybe, maybe that's why we're, this, this new phase when we're the temple, uh, and I don't know, those are options, but here's what we do know. What happened to Ananias and Sapphira, it is a crystal clear picture of where all false worship will end think about the other people in the bible god struck dead a good number of them were struck dead because of false worship you have nadab and abihu they were struck dead for putting improper fire on the altar you have uzzah who remember reached out to touch the ark which was explicitly prohibited in the worship of god they were struck dead you have god killing many people who inhabited the promised land and he says so he does so because they worshiped false gods so all of this is a picture of where false worship ultimately ends and i think it's always up, worth saying it's not up to us to exercise any kind of judgment on people who believe differently. That's up to God to do. And it's especially important to note because I think unless God does some sort of great awakening type revival among us, we're only going to see false worship increase around us. So this intervention that we have with Ananias and Sapphira, it is the exception, not the rule, but it should be crystal clear that this is a picture, a foreshadowing of what happens to false worship. Paul tells us in Romans that we will get what we want. 
We'll get what we want. He will, God will hand us over. If, whatever it is that we want, if we want money, pain, power, he will praise of other people, attention. He will relinquish us to be able to pursue and worship those things. But none of those things will ultimately satisfy us or save us from our greatest problem, which is sin. And so the worship of those things is actually a product of our sin and taking us away from the one who can satisfy us and can give us the salvation from our sin that we truly need and desire. And only Jesus Christ can deal with our sin. Only Jesus Christ can give us a heart that truly desires to worship God and only the worship of the one true God is ever going to satisfy us enough to be able to begin to reorder all the other things that we naturally worship, all the other things that call and tug on our hearts. And the irony of it all is only when those things are less important in our life can we actually enjoy them. Because the things we worship, they're not all bad things inherently. They could be good things but they have become too important and they intoxicate us the way that attention and praise of man intoxicated Ananias and Sapphira. So they worship the praise of men. If they had worshiped God first, they would have been able to navigate that situation. They would have been able to have the freedom to not give the money and not present this money in front of everybody. Or they may even have the greater freedom to do what Barnabas did and present all of it to the church because they, out of their worship for the one true God that so far exceeds any earthly desire for praise or for money. So, we are here on this earth for one main purpose, to worship. To worship God and to display that worship to everybody in our life that we get to interact with. And we live in a really confusing time when you, when, to talk about and to understand worship. People are increasingly privatizing their worship. Their, their, their spiritual life is something that's very personal and private. They don't interact with other people, so they're cutting themselves off from the blessing of God's people. They're cutting themselves off from the blessing of the church. They're cutting themselves off from the blessing of a, of a COVID brain. Of a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Corporate worship, thank you. Corporate. They are instead beginning to pick and choose some a la carte version of spirituality that is going to suit the desires of their heart more not knowing that what they're inherently doing is conforming and making a god into their own image a god that can never satisfy a god that can never save and they're leaving the thing the one who can satisfy and save and holding on and worshiping things that will only bring destruction that's what's going on in Ananias and Sapphira. That's what's going on in the rest of our culture. And for us as Christians, I think this passage begs us to mine our hearts about the singular focus of our worship because we're not immune to worshiping other things just because they're a Christian, but we have the benefit of the Holy Spirit to ask the Holy Spirit, all right, when I make a bonehead decision, when I sin, what is it about my worship that's off? What is it that's fun? What am I ultimately worshiping? What am I ultimately wanting? What desires am I wanting to satisfy outside of you that caused me to make these bad decisions? And God promises us through the gift of his Holy Spirit that he will give us the answer. He will show us and he will use all those things con- to conform us more into the image of his son.
Let's pray. God, I thank you so much. I thank you uh, for the blessing of being here. I thank you for uh, your faithfulness to my own family and getting us through uh, COVID. I thank you that I've been able to stand up for maybe about 30 minutes and, and talk and be in your word. But most of all, we are thankful for the fact that you have given us your word and you have given us your son to be able to set us free from all our natural idolatrous worship that you might set our hearts back on you. And so today I pray that this would be more true of all of us, that the singular worship that you desire would be made more true in each of our hearts, wherever it is that we are. And God, I pray that that worship would be seen by others and that your kingdom would grow and be strengthened through it. Thank you so much. We pray this by the power of your Holy Spirit and in the name of your only perfect son, Jesus Christ. Amen.